Good afternoon. If you'd like to take your Bibles out and follow along, or be studying in just a moment from the book of Acts. Um, while you're taking your Bibles out and turning there, I just want to thank you for, for the time that you have given to be here to study from God's Word. As I mentioned this morning, we're going to be talking a little bit about God and His character and how we, uh, we, we can look at that character, we can learn things about Him, and hopefully it can bring us into a, a, a better ability to trust in Him. Uh, and not too long ago, I, I spoke about how God has made several opportunities uh, to, for, for us to come to learn about Him and for us to know Him. And as we see those opportunities, we see, we see those things in creation. We see when we look around us. Uh, not too long ago, me and Ryder were, were up at Mom and Dad's farm in the dark, and I just had the opportunity just to stop out in the middle of the woods, surrounded by just nothing but blackness, um, as we were surrounded by all these great giant trees, and look up and see the stars. And it's just what does that say to you? How is that not an impressive uh, display of the very nature of God and His power and His might? Um, so in, in the creation, in, in, in nature, in the written Word, in the fulfillment of prophecy, in the life of Christ, we talked about how God reveals Himself to us, and we noted our God, for Miss Revelation, is an awesome, awesome God. Uh, prior to that, um, going back a couple of months now, I know, but we had talked about the, the floating axe head of 2 Kings chapter 6. And how that story, that account reveals to us that this awesome God that created the heavens and the earth, this God that, that me and Ryder witnessed His handiwork on that night, He cares for you. He cared for an unnamed person on the side of the Jordan as He, as he lamented the, the loss of this act said that to us means very little, but to Him meant the end of His whole world. God cared for Him enough to bring Him out of that hardship. And so I wanted to continue this afternoon in our understanding of God. And I, I hinted at that this morning. I said we're going to talk about things that, that reveal to us the dependability of, of our God. I'm feeling this thing's getting ready to go crazy because I'm pushing buttons like mad up here. Um, we're going to talk about the dependability of God. I wanted to say before we went on, I talked, we talked this morning about pragmatism. Uh, and I, I realized after, as I am often to do, driving home from a lesson going, did I do a good job with that? Did I present that? Was I clear? That in no way did I hope that I, I gave anyone the thought that this lesson is a, a weapon for us to go into the world and say, oh, you don't think that'll work? Well, how it's very pragmatic of you, you pragmatist. But rather to look at ourselves. What have I been thinking? Have I been looking at God's commands and looking at what God wants us to do and saying, well, that doesn't really make sense to me. It seems like it'd be easier if we did this or this would work better. And what that reveals to me is maybe I'm not relying enough on God and I'm depending more on myself. And that's what I want to talk about this afternoon is the dependability of God. How I know that we can depend on Him. Now that word depend, what does that word mean? What is, when I talk about dependence, what am I, I talking about here? Well, the word depend, when you look it up, it means to have, for something to be contingent upon or for something to hang upon something else. So, so for this to happen, it must be contingent or must hang upon this over here for it to be possible. And in my mind, when I started to think about that, what does that look like to me? Well, I'll tell you, one of the first things I think about is what it doesn't look like to me. We've all probably had that friend or that uh, acquaintance that, that we knew, maybe we were setting up plans for, we were going to see a movie or go out to dinner together, we're going to do something with this person, and in the back of our mind, we know 
they're going to stand me up. <laughs> this is very likely not going to happen. They, they may call me at the last minute and say, hey, you know, something's come up or I've got something else that I want to do or my, my plans have changed or they might not even let me know anything. But in the back of my mind, I go, okay, I, I probably know I'm making these, plan, these plans with this person, but I should probably make other plans too because more than likely they're not going to carry through with their end of the deal. That's not very dependable of them. So there's what I think. When I think of what does it mean to depend on God, what does it mean that God is dependable? I know one thing when that, just from a, a worldly view of this, of this word, it means that I don't have to make other plans. I know that I can rely on His plans, on His word, and He's going to be faithful to them. But another place I go to when I think about dependence, especially when I think about the idea that dependence means something is contingent to or something hangs upon something else, as I think about something that me and that's a good, I didn't know my brother was going to be here tonight, but uh, I'm, I'm glad that he is. Me and Derek learned to rock climb together from information that we gleaned from the great source of Google. Uh, we looked at YouTube videos and we read articles that this is what you do to rock climb. And for some reason, we put all our trust in that, tied a rope to ourselves and stepped off the edge of a cliff. And we're here, so... That should tell you that we had some form of success. But one thing that I learned as we prepared to learn how to, to repel and rock climb is this, this mnemonic that helps climbers make an anchor. So you're getting ready to step off of the rock or you're getting ready to hopefully climb up the rock and you want something to catch you if things get out of hand. And so you make an anchor that you can tie your rope to and know that you're going to be safe. And the mnemonic that climbers use is, the, is S-R-E-N-E. And it stands for serene. But each one of those letters means something. It means solid, redundant, equal tension, and non-extending. And I'm not going to explain what all that means because that was a long time ago and I've, I've forgotten. Um, but whenever, whenever climbers are making these anchors, they know if this anchor is a solid, if it's attached to something that's solid, if it's, if it's equally loaded, off of, not one side of the anchor has more weight than the other one, if it doesn't go over the rock where it might rub against it and break, I know that this thing will be solid, it will be dependable, I can hang from it and not be afraid that I'm going to fall to my death. And so they would say, if, I'm, if an anchor is fashioned this way, I can trust it. Well, that's what I want to talk about. What are we hanging from? And when we say that we depend on God, what does that look like? And to do that, I think we see that we can uh, find that in examples of people's life in the Bible. And one of those people is, is, is Paul. Um, an interesting thing that I see about Paul is Paul's life depends very little on what other people do. He talks about that this morning. Other people had done terrible things to him. He continued on. So, so Paul's life depends very little. And a man that I, that I hold to, to great esteem told me one time, said, stop being crushed. Stop being surprised when men disappoint you. Whenever something happens, you just think, I would have never saw that coming. I can't believe that. And your world is falling apart because someone has strayed from the faith, been unfaithful to a spouse. As something is happening, he says, stop letting that ruin your faith because, after all, they're just men. I'm not trying to, to justify anybody's sins, but he's saying you can't depend on men 
to be faithful all the time. You, you need to recognize that they're going to make mistakes and they're going to be tempted the same way that you are tempted. You can depend on mankind and his words about as far as you can throw them. And I had intended to make a comment about throwing Madden, but since he's at home in bed feeling really bad, I'll pick out Ryder and say, if I could throw Ryder from up here, I'm pretty sure maybe to the front pew. Get him. I might be able to clear the front pew and bounce him over that. But I, I can't throw him very far. I can't, you, you can depend on man about that far, about as far as you can throw him. This was his, his, his phrase. And so what he was calling me to do, as I began this, this work of uh, getting involved in preaching, he was saying stop depending on, on the men that are around you to say this is what's going to be a marker for things are going well. This is what's going to be a marker that I'm on the right path. Stop depending on man and start depending on God. Throughout history, God has shown that He is someone who keeps His promises. Throughout history, He has shown that He is someone that holds up His end of the deal. He won't back out at the last minute. He's someone that will not leave you hanging. He is nothing short of reliable. And He's given us multiple examples, and that's what I want to look at today. Paul is one of these examples that I want to consider, who boldly spoke the Word of God to powerful Powerful figures. I want you to think about the times that Paul spoke to men like Festus and Felix and Agrippa and Caesar. Um, we had a gentleman visiting with us not too long ago. He's visited a couple times and he has a bit of, of notoriety to his name. And someone said, would that make you nervous preaching in front of such a person? And truth be told, my first answer was no because I didn't know who he was. Uh, and that says a lot about, about my pop culture knowledge. But number two, Paul spoke to Caesar. He spoke to, to, to people that not only were, were notorious, they had great notoriety, they had the ability to take his life, held his life in their hands. Paul spoke boldly. How much more so, or how should we as well speak boldly to the people of this world that, that really bear very little bearing in our, in our physical lives oftentimes? But I think about Paul not in these times. Not whenever he is speaking to, to Felix or Festus in chains. No, I think about Paul when he's floating out of control on the sea. When he is on a boat, I referenced this again this morning, he's on a boat that is, that is being destroyed by the winds and the waves. I'm thinking of Paul as he is shipwrecked on an island and being bitten by a poisonous viper. And I want to read about that, that moment and that time in Paul's life. And so if your book is open to Acts, go ahead and turn to Acts 27. And I don't want to read... I don't want to read the entire chapter tonight, but what I do want to do is start reading in verse 13 and read through the end of the chapter. So this is a point when Paul is on his voyage to Rome. He is in captivity to, uh, for, his, for his faith, and he has warned them along the way. I, I, I think we should stay where we are. We should not go out, and they are ignoring his warnings. And so in verse 13, it says, A south wind, they've, they've put back out to the, the sea, and it says, A south wind blew softly. Supposing that they had obtained their desire putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete, but not long after a tempestuous headwind arose called a Euryclidon. And when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, uh, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clotta, we secured the skiff with difficulty. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship and fearing lest they should run aground on Syrtis, 
On the Sirtis Sands, they struck sail and so were driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. And now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you, take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. Indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Now, when the fourteenth night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors sensed that there was that they were drawing near some land. And they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little farther, they took soundings and again and found it to be 15 fathoms. Then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day. You have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is your survival, since not a hair will fall from your head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. And And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach and onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. They let go of the anchors and let them in the sea. Meanwhile, loosening the rudder ropes and they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. But striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves, and the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim could jump over, overboard first and get to land, and the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ships. And so it was that they had all escaped safely to the land. Now, I can't help but as we read that, not too long ago we talked about Jonah, and I can't help but just think about the differences in the account of, of Paul and the shipwreck having lost all hope in the account of Jonah, who, who is down during the storm asleep, and, and you have the, 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 the soldiers of that trip going through the very same thing, and they're the ones that are calling out to God while Jonah is completely foreign from what's going on. We see here Paul is in the midst of this, Luke is in the midst of this, and they're saying there was no hope left. And it was, it was a bad situation. I think that's to put it lightly. And it goes from one bad situation to another. Because as we know, he gets, they, they land on this island of Malta. They get off. And before too long, Paul's bitten by a poisonous viper. We should start wondering, maybe at some point, why is Paul going through all this? And I think we answered that question this morning from 2 Corinthians 1, verse 9. So that our reliance, our trust would not be in ourselves, but in God. But we must remember what's going on here. Paul has become a gospel, a, a, an apostle of the gospel to the Gentiles. God has a special plan for him to go to Rome. And, and Paul is on his way here, but he's still experiencing great trials. He's obeying God. He's not like Jonah running away from the problem. He's not running from what God wants. And yet still, he's facing these hardships on his journey. 
And so I believe that the important lesson that was being tried to being brought to Paul is what we read there in verse 20. As Luke records, finally, all hope of being saved was abandoned. Having lost control of their ship, I want us to think about what exactly is going on at this time. Having lost control of their ship, these guys are, are trained sailors. Paul has spent time on the water before. They probably think this is this is bad situation. This is not good. This isn't the first time I imagine these men have been in a storm. They start doing things that you do in a storm. That I would assume that you would do in a storm. So, okay, let's let's throw the anchors overboard. Let's try to control this thing. Let's try to figure out what's going on and how to get us somewhere safely. There's something I don't understand. Every time I read this, say these guys tried to tie the boat together. You remember that in verse uh, verse 17. When they had taken on board, they they used cables to undergird the ship, fearing that they should run aground on the seared sands. They have the cables of the boat that they've wrapped the ship in because the waves and the storm is so bad. When it gets to that point, we were we were stuck on a on a in a storm. Me and my father and my uncle. I think in Wisconsin, we were on one of these one of these big lakes, and storm came up, and I remember we're just in this little boat, and we're just, bam, bam, we'd go up on the wave and slam back down. I remember every time we come down, it just felt like the boat was going to fall apart, but there was never a point where I went, okay, let's get ropes and tie the boat together. This seems to be where they are. This is how bad it's gotten, that I'm going to undergird the boat and try to keep it from falling apart, from busting up. This is real trouble. And this is real different than times in Paul's past. Because Paul's been in trouble before. If you look back to Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23 and verse 11 describes an earlier point in Paul's life where he's in, to, in, in this same amount of trouble. He's t- been taken captive for his faith. But in verse, uh, in verse 11, we read that there's a plot being formed about him. It says, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, you must also bear witness at Rome. So God says, I've still got a plan for you. Don't be afraid. Be of good cheer. But verse 12 says, When it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Now, being in a storm, having to tie a boat together, that sounds bad. But having a group of men that are saying, I'm going to starve myself until I kill you, that sounds pretty bad too. And that's the shape that Paul is in. And so this, this conspiracy to, to kill him, it, it makes its way to him by the, by the word of his sister's son. Verse 16, when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, take this young man to the commander for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you as something to say. The commander takes him aside and asks him what it is, and he tells him about the conspiracy, and, and they, make, they make plans for that. They, they, they prepare for that. You can see in verse 23, they, they're, they're getting 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen. They're getting prepared for this attempt on Paul's life. And I want us to see the difference between these two situations. Yes, Paul puts his faith in God. God has come to him the night before and says, Be of good cheer, Paul. You're going to Rome. I've got work for you to do in Rome. He puts his faith in that. But you know, at some, uh, on some level, he had to be hoping, I hope my nephew gets that message to the centurion. My nephew comes and says, Guys want to kill you. They've taken an oath. They're not going to eat until they do it. And he says, Go tell the guy that can protect me. And he has to hope he really gets there so he can have that protection. That's what's so remarkably different from what we're reading here now. There is nothing left for me to hope in. 
We have done everything we can do. It is time to give up. We're just accepting the fact we are going to die in this storm. We will not be saved. And in this, what he learns is God is all sufficient. Sufficient enough to meet the needs of of, of the situation that he is in. Uh, God provides Paul with everything that he needs and he provides it for him right when he needs it. Notice, he allows Paul to be in chains during all this. He allows Paul to be, to be in, in captivity in, in, this, uh, in this imprisonment because of what he has believed and what he has been doing. He allows Paul to be in danger. He allows Paul to be shipwrecked. And he allows Paul to be bitten by a snake. I think that that's really important for us to see sometimes. And, and, and we question this and we, we want to try to find answers for this. Why? Why did he allow all these things? Because if we say, well, he had no control over it, we have to accept the fact then that God is, God is not fully sovereign over his creation. There was control. God had the ability to pull him out of this at any time. God allows him, though, to experience these things. And we learned why. We learned why in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 this morning. He needed to learn that God was sufficient for him. He needed to learn that God had everything that he needed to meet the needs that he had at that very moment. And that means to mean something to us as well. Just as God was all-sufficient in those tempestuous waters of the Mediterranean, God is all-sufficient in the stormy seas of our life as well. So that, what does that mean? That means that we're going to face storms. We need to go ahead and accept that fact that we're going to be tried in this life. In Acts chapter 14, Acts chapter 14 and verse 22 uh, we're, we're going to start in verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and many, uh, made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Now what has just happened to Paul at this time? He's just been stoned, left for dead, maybe even killed, depending on how you read this passage here in, uh, in verse 19. Paul has went through some pretty bad things. And we know the Corinthians look at that and go, why should we believe you? Because your life is just terrible. How can you be a representative from God and you're getting treated this bad? And he comes back to the the people of Derbe and Iconium and uh, and, and the area around Antioch and he says, look, this is what you're coming into. This is what following God and entering into the kingdom, this is what it looks like. You're going to go through trials. It's going to be hard. And when these trials fall upon us, what are we going to do? What are we going to recognize is happening? We might think to ourselves, I'm trying to serve God. I'm trying to do what's right. I've been a pretty good guy. Why am I experiencing these things? But we also might want to stop and say, well, who am I really depending on at this time? Because maybe God is trying to reach me to say, hey, you've really been leaning upon yourself a lot lately. See, some of us, we become dependent and we become dependent, maybe not on ourselves, maybe we become dependent on other people. And going back to what my friend said to me when I started preaching, stop depending on other men to justify whether or not your work is going well or not. Stop leaning upon that and saying, if, if that happens, if, if, if X happens, then this must be true. And then I'm not doing a good job. And then I have failed in some way and I need to give up. Because you stop doing that. Lean upon God. Look at Him. Whenever we lean upon others in this life, when we lean upon ourselves, or we lean upon our finances, and we think, you know what, if I just have enough money, I'll be happy. If I have enough money, I can get through this. What we find ourselves is feeling broke and impoverished. Or a terrible one for our society, one that I've struggled with often, is sometimes we just lean upon our need to not be bored. 
We lean upon our need for entertainment. We lean upon our need to be busy doing something. One of my favorite phrases that our children say is, I'm bored. Oh man, I'm ready for that one. I will give you something to do if you are bored. But sometimes I just tell them, good, be bored. It's good for you to be bored. It's good for you to know that you don't have to have something in front of you pleasing you 100% of the time. Use this time to do something meaningful. But when we depend so much on entertainment, we depend so much on finding a way to please ourselves, it leaves us feeling, feel, feeling anxious and looking for that, that something to fill that void. And what God wants us to do in those times is say, don't look to more finance and don't look to more people and don't look to more entertainment. Look to me. Look to me because I can give you everything you need. I can give you exactly what you need to depend on. And that's why James writes in James 1 and verse 2, rejoice when you fall into trials. Because that's creating something in you. It's giving you the opportunity. And if you can't see that, he says in verse 5, pray for wisdom. Pray that you see the end at the beginnings. Where is this leading me? And when we see that this is leading me towards perfection, we see this leading me towards depending upon God more and turning less away, uh, or turning more away from myself and, and further into Him, we can rejoice in that. Help us to build up endurance, God. Should be the question that we ask. Not why am I going through this, but, but help me to get through this and see where this is going to lead me and how you are going to be glorified in my life. In fact, when we do persevere through our trials, oftentimes we're, we are blessed not by becoming stronger on our own, by becoming stronger by our understanding of God. What I find interesting is that when Paul recounts his life, like in passages like 2 Corinthians 1, he doesn't recount his life. He doesn't talk about an occurrence like this and say, God gave me the opportunity to become the world's best swimmer and survive snake bites. That's what I took from this. I have, I have super blood. And you all should be making venom things out of this. I just lost my word in the middle of my, the middle of my sentence. Antidotes. You should make antidotes out of my blood. He doesn't come from that. He says, God delivered me. He says, I, he got the lesson. He says, God was trying to get me to quit leaning upon myself and start leaning upon him. And that is the effect that it had. And he passes that on to others. I think it's interesting. In 2 Timothy 1, 2 Timothy 1, we see this, uh, one of my favorite passages is 2 Timothy 1, verse 7, where he tells Timothy not to be, you know, not to be filled with fear. Because of the gift that Timothy has, he says, don't be given. God hasn't given you a spirit of fear, but a power and love and a sound mind. But continue on from there. Don't stop on that. What does he say then? Therefore, because God hasn't given a spirit, but a, a spirit of power, uh, uh, power and love and a sound mind, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor me of his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. Why would he call for Timothy, this young evangelist, to share in the sufferings? Because Paul is fully aware of what that will create in Timothy. That opens up the door for the power of God. He says, God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher to the Gentiles. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I believed, and I am persuaded that He is able to keep what I have committed to Him until that day. You know what Paul's saying there? If we could just take 
Peter said it so well. Paul said some hard things. But if we just take all this and say, Paul, what are you getting at? He would say, God is dependable. Yes, when things get hard, it's easy to look around and say, what am I going to do? First, let's look to God. Let's look to God and, and, and lean upon Him. But then we have to ask our question, are we really leaning upon Him? Because no matter how dependable God is, it's going back to that climbing, no matter how good that anchor is, be the best anchor in the whole wide world, if I don't attach myself to it in some way, I'm just going to fall off the cliff. No matter how dependable God is, we have to choose to take advantage of His dependability. Paul could have just chosen to say, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm, I'm going to stay in Caesarea and I'm just going to stay here until things die down. I'm not going back. I'm not going back to these places. I'm not going back to where the trouble was at. That's not his choice. But that's what Jonah chose to do. Jonah said it when he's commanded to go to Nineveh, he says, I don't think so and I'm going to run away from this. When the Israelites are commanded to go in and conquer the, the land of Canaan, what do they do? They say, that's the, 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 the buildings are too big. The, the walls are too high. There's giants there. There's too much. We can't do it. And what do we learn from all these experiences? We learn that this is what it looks like for people to rely upon themselves, to rely upon their own abilities, to, to, to lean upon their own uh, prejudices. And what I see from this then is that we need to be a people. If we are a people that have come to God, if we are a people that belong to the kingdom of Christ, we need to be a people who have given up, who have given up our independence. And that is a terribly difficult thing for us to do as Americans. What does it mean when I say giving up our, our independence? Independence is just the opposite of dependence. It's not contingent upon something, not hanging upon something else. And a great example of that is an example of Jacob. When you think of Jacob and his life, he has this, this literal struggle to give up his, his, his independence, which begins all the way at his youth when he takes advantage of his brother. His brother comes in and he says, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm so hungry, give me some of that stew. And he's like, well, you gotta, you're going to have to sell me your birthright for it. I'm going to get your birthright from you. And he, he is able to deceive him out of that. We see the cunning ambitiousness of him and how you know, he was self-seeking. He takes times when, he, when there's physical weaknesses. He takes time during the physical weakness of his very father to, to trick him, deceive him, his very own father, into blessing him with his, with his brother's blessing. And then he runs away from the family because he knows that his brother's going to kill him. But you think about what happens later. He goes to his uncle's house. He winds up marrying both of his uncle's daughters and leaving with most of his uncle's wealth. And he tricks him too with, with this, this scheme to get better sheep from him. Uh, as he's given, given charge over, over the, uh, the, the, the raising of the sheep. And so we, we see this, this kind of marks the life of Jacob. He is a self-made man. If I want it, I find a way to get it. If it means that I lie, if it means that I cheat, if it means that I steal, it doesn't matter what I'm going to do. I'm going to get it. And I'm taking care of me. He's relying upon himself. But look what happens when God comes to him and says, I want you to go home. I want you to go back to your father's Land And along the way in Genesis 32, we meet this, this individual, this stranger that he wrestles with in the wilderness. In Genesis 32, verses 24 through 32, we read all about Jacob wrestling with this guy. It says that um, <clears throat> Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. 
So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. And Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, and the muscle shrank. So one thing that I always think about when I read through here is who is he wrestling with? Who is it that Jacob is wrestling with this time? The, the, the account calls him a man, but Jacob refers to him as God. And Hosea chapter 12, when you get over to Hosea the prophet, he starts talking about this, this individual, and he says he's wrestling with an angel. So we have Jacob under the assumption that this is, this is God that he's fighting with. We, we have a prophet saying it is an angel. It's a messenger of God. And we have the very text itself saying it's a man. And it seems to me like all these markers point towards someone like Jesus. But you know... One thing in this that's not debatable, we, we cannot for a second debate this point. We might debate all day long who he's fighting with, and it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who he's wrestling with too much. The thing that we cannot debate in this is that there is no reason that we should ever feel like Jacob is winning this match. Whatever this, this wrestling match that they're involved in, we should not read this and go, oh, Jacob has really got the upper hand. I think for so long... I had a hard time with that because of verse 25. Verse 25, you read, he has not prevailed against him. So it sounds like, sounds like Jacob's winning. And for most of my life, I read that, and I just picture Jacob and this individual are wrestling, and Jacob's got him in a headlock. Like I always had Derek in a headlock when we wrestled. And he's got him in a headlock, and he's saying, I'm never letting you go. I'm never letting you go until you give me my blessing. But that's not what happens. That's not what happens because as he struggles with him, he just touches him on the hip. Now, he doesn't strike him. He doesn't do some sort of special move. He just touches his hip. And with the touch of his finger, we find that Jacob is incredibly outclassed in this wrestling match. This guy, whoever this was, had the ability to win at any moment. And this is where we notice Jacob clinging to the man. And now my mindset really changes. I don't see him with this, you know, this individual in a headlock. I see him grabbing and grasping at his ankles maybe, holding on to him, begging him, bless me. Or as Hosea again describes it, weeping, crying, and seeking for favor. And so maybe we ask the question then, well, then when did Jacob prevail? It says that he prevailed when? When did, the, when did he prevail? And I would argue it was when he surrendered. It was when he was grasping with all hope that this is the only way I'm going to get out of this is if you give me a blessing. And after this lesson, what do we see in Jacob's life? He's allowed to receive his inheritance. He's reconciled with his brothers. He is changed as a, as a person. We see him heading to meet his brother and his wives and children. He sends them ahead of him. Maybe he's thinking to himself, maybe he's still mad. Maybe he takes the, he's going to take it out on them first. But now we see just the opposite. We see him running ahead of them. And he runs to his brother and he falls at his brother's feet and he's begging him for forgiveness. He has made a complete 180 degree turn from who he was living at his father's house to who he is today heading back making amends with his brothers. And all of this happens 
after he has this encounter with, with God and surrenders himself to him. And so maybe we ask ourselves the same question then. Have we been surrendering? Have we given up our independence to God? And I said that's a really hard thing for us to consider as Americans because we celebrate our independence. We set a whole day aside to say this is the day that we gained us independence. We are America. We are the home of the free. How on earth can we ever give up our independence? But think about what Peter says as a, as a free man in 1 Peter 2 and verse 16. He says, act as free men, but use it as bond slaves of God. You have independence. You have freedom. Great. Don't let that freedom bring you back into the slavery which God sent His Son to bring you out of. Use your freedom as a bond slave of God. So let me ask you a couple questions this afternoon. Have we been surrendering our independence? Who have we been depending on? Who is it that we have clung ourselves to in this life? Have we, have we decided that somehow I'm going to brute strength, push myself through everything, all the struggles that I'm dealing with, I'll get through them, I'll take them on my back and I'll carry them, I'll push back the pain, I'll push back the tears, and I'm going to fight. And maybe not realize that we're fighting against God. That's the picture that we see early on of Paul. As God comes to him and says, I've been goading you. And you're kicking back against it. You're fighting against God in your efforts to do this on your own, especially since his efforts to do this on his own was taking him a very far different course than God wanted him on. Instead, God wants to bless him if he would just surrender himself to him. That's exactly what Jacob did. Surrenders himself to a being of infinitely greater power. We have a Lord of infinitely greater power than us who can fill all of our needs and when we are lonely, and when we are broken, and when we are tired, and when we are hungry, and we are morally bankrupt, and even when we are bored, He can depend us, or we can depend upon Him to fill us and fill the needs that we have if only we would quit looking to every other source and to ourselves to find that and start relying on Him. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What that tells me is I am never going to be able to find the way. I am never going to be able to understand the truth. I am ever, never going to be able to have life until I surrender myself to Christ. Until I place Him above myself. In Matthew 11, Jesus describes it as putting a yoke on. He says, take my yoke. A yoke is a device that, that many of us are just not very familiar with anymore that fastens animals usually not just together. Sometimes we think, well, a yoke fixes two animals together. Yes, a yoke does that. But generally, it does that for the purpose of pulling some form of farm implementation. Usually, you see that a plow of some sort. And let me tell you, the operator of the plow, he controls the animals that have set themselves in that yoke, that have allowed themselves to be yoked together to that work. He is in complete control and they are completely dependent on Him. They are dependent on Him not to work them to death. You ever heard of people that have, that have worked horses and worked cattle and so they just, they just die of exhaustion? They're dependent upon the operator. They're dependent that He's going to give them the water they need. They're dependent that He's going to give them the food that they need. And Jesus says, take my yoke. For my burden is, is, is easy and my yoke is light. 
And he's saying, rely on me. Depend on me for everything. Are we willing to to do that? Are we willing to surrender to him? Are we willing to give up our independence to him? I think again of, of back to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had this, this promise in the beginning. They're totally dependent upon God for everything. God has given them a place to live. He has given them food, every food of the garden, and He's given them one that they cannot have. And the serpent comes along and He says, you don't have to depend on Him. You can be just like Him. You don't need Him. You can eat that fruit and you can be Him. You don't need that. And the lie that we somehow get that into our minds that somehow I can just depend on myself. I can depend on myself to get through this life. I can depend on myself to get myself into heaven. I hear that sometimes in the way people talk about, about baptism and about righteousness. And I understand why there are people in this world that, that cringe at the thought that they have to be baptized because of the way that we sometimes present it to them as if somehow we are earning ourselves into salvation. We need to understand we depend upon God. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 makes that, makes that very clear. And we turn over there. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. Listen to what Paul says here. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. What's the gift of God? What's the gift of God that he's talking about here? The grace to know the truth. The grace to have an opportunity to be made free. The, the, the faith to be able to look upon the grace of the Word which has been given to us and believe and the salvation. All of that. The whole thing, you'll talk to Calvinists sometimes who will say, well, faith is the gift. God must give you the gift of faith and then you're saved. And so if God doesn't give it to you, you can't be saved. We need to understand passages like Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. And the implication of them is that not that just one aspect of this, not one aspect of our salvation comes from God, the whole thing. We would be nothing and have no, no hope whatsoever if it wasn't for grace and faith and, and salvation that comes only from God. Are we putting our faith in Him? Are we being taught by that grace? Are we lying and or leaning upon Him for our salvation? And what does that look like? What does it look like when we do that? For starters, we would turn to passages like Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. We talk about believing and, and, and confessing uh, in, in Jesus. We talk about Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. And yes, we talk about baptism and how these things, the, these things are, are, are commanded to us, but we need to know they're not just arbitrary commands. God didn't just sit around for a couple thousand years and go, okay, I'm working toward this point when Jesus gets here. When He gets here, what hoops am I going to make these people jump through to show that they're followers of Me? It's not what He's doing. He's inviting us to put on the yoke. He's inviting us to remove our self-reliance and to move from our own independence and join His Son in death being transformed in our minds, offering up lives that are, that are worthy of a follower, which means lives that are sacrifices. You see, we can't just, we can't just stop at, at believing. We can't just say, well, I, I believe and that's all. And we, we also can't stop at baptism. We have to continue into holy living. It's like I, I was talking with the boys the other night. They, one, of them, one of them brought up the point. He said, I wish that I had a book with every bad word in it so I would know what words I can't say. Maybe somebody should write that book, Dad. Somebody needs to write a book with every bad word in it so I would know which words I shouldn't say. I was like, man, aren't we like that? 
We all want that. It's just wish God would just give me a book with everything that I can't do. Just, just break them all down. Don't do this and this and this and this and this. But in some way, at some point, what I would do at the end of the day with that book is say, look at me. I haven't done a single thing in God's book of things I can't do. I think God in His wisdom said, I'm not going to give you a book with everything you can't do. I'm going to give you my word and say, what I want you to do is lean on me. And so what I told my boys was, you know, yeah, that might be helpful to have a book that these are all the words that you can't say. But if my heart is already given to saying, my words are going to glorify God, my words are going to magnify Him, then I don't need a book that says these aren't the words I'm going to say because I've already chosen the words that I am. And they're words that are going to be righteous before God, that are going to honor God. We need to recognize that we're moving. We're being called to move from looking at our own abilities and looking at who we are and looking at what we've done and lean wholeheartedly upon God. And then we also need to realize that we just can't depend upon ourselves and you can't depend upon me and I don't depend upon you. And I hope you know what I mean by that. I hope everyone here knows exactly what I mean by that. Because our soul and our eternal salvation is far too precious for me to say it relies upon the life of anybody else other than my Savior, Jesus Christ. If you want to open your songbooks, just a minute, we're going to sing number 307. 307. Are you washed in the blood? And as we sing that song of encouragement, I hope that what you think about during the, the, these words, and as we recall back what God has done to bring us out of a life focused on ourselves and bring us into a life submitted to Him, I hope that what you think about is the fact that we have been given a glorious opportunity. An opportunity to accept the invitation of Christ, to take on His yoke, to cast off our own self-dependence, and dedicate ourselves to serving Him. And if you desire to do that this afternoon, it is our desire to assist you with that. But I also hope that if you've already made that decision, as we sing these words, that you realize Christianity didn't stop at the day that I decided to follow Christ. It's a journey in which I stumble and I fall. And if I want to be right with God, and when that happens, I need to realize that I can retake Jesus' hand. And I can get back up and I can quit looking to myself and quit having maybe, maybe a pity party upon myself and quit letting Satan just run roughshod all over me with the fear that I'm just not good enough. Because God went to great lengths to say, I am. Lean upon me. Whatever your need is this afternoon, I want to encourage you. We have an awesome, awesome God. And He loves you. And He has given a great deal for you. And it is our desire to assist you in whatever way we can in coming to Him. Won't you please come forward right now? Let it be known as we stand and sing.